All right. We are looking at just the first two verses of chapter 2 of 1 John this morning, which is quite a change for me. The last three times I've preached, I've had passages that range from, I think, two to seven chapters. And so I have this, this imagination of what must have gone on in Anthony's brain. Um, I'm thinking maybe Anthony's making up for giving me such long passages to preach the last few times I preached. Either that or when he gave me multiple chapters, he was like, Rand preached way too long. And so as he was thinking about this time, maybe he was thinking, you know what, this time we're going to give Rand two chapters, no, scratch that. We're going to give Rand two verses from one of the shortest books in all of the Bible, and maybe then he'll preach shorter. I don't know. No guarantees this morning that the fact that it's a 90% shorter passage than the last time when I preached from Isaiah will result in a 90% shorter message. But I am really excited to dig into the richness of such a small section of Scripture with you this morning. One of the benefits of such a small text is that we can really look at it word by word, understand the context that it was in, and hopefully get rich truth out of this that will change us. But since this is two verses, and just two verses, let me also say that context is always important, but context is particularly important when looking at a very short passage. And I say that because I think a lot of us have maybe had this experience. How many of you have ever heard a preacher preach from just a single verse, or maybe you've heard another Christian trying to tell you what the Bible says about a particular issue, and they use just one verse or just two verses, and you're listening to them and you're going, eh, is that really what just that one verse means? Or, or you may be just using that one verse to make a point that's really important to you, because I don't think that's what it's teaching. Have any of you ever had that experience? Yeah, hands all over the room. Good for you. If you've ever had that experience and you have thought those thoughts, that's a good thing. It means you're discerning. It means you're looking out for what we would call spiritual abuse. That happens a lot with people using a single proof text or what gets called a clobber passage. And so I want to be very careful that that's not what we do this morning with this very, very short text. The truth is, any single verse or couple of verses can be interpreted to mean just about anything that someone wants. But when you understand the context of the book or the letter that those short passages are in, when you understand the context of the original audience, when you understand the context of God's whole big redemptive story that he's been telling throughout history and through the whole Bible, you use that context to understand a short passage and you can get great truth and rich truth from these short texts. And so that means that our two verses this morning, 1 John chapter 1 and 2, do not, cannot exist in isolation for us. And so we're going to start with the context of these verses this morning, which Kyle made super easy for me by preaching a wonderful message last Sunday that went over the history of John and specifically covering chapter 1 that leads right up to our passage today. Last Sunday, Kyle kicked off this series on 1 John by reminding us of the context of John's history, specifically his history as a close friend of Jesus and an eyewitness to his life, his death, and his resurrection. John's a very old man when he writes this. And in chapter 1, John reminds his reader of the credibility that he has to teach them and encourage them and even challenge them because he knew Jesus. He had experienced Jesus personally. 
And the reason he says he's writing this letter in chapter 1, and he's actually going to say this several times throughout the book, I'm writing to you because of X, Y, Z. He has multiple purposes. But what he mentions in chapter 1 is that he is writing this letter so that his readers will enjoy something that he calls fellowship. He'll use this word over and over again in 1 John. I want you to have fellowship, a close relationship with God and with others. That's his purpose in writing chapter 1. But there's a problem here. And the problem that he points out is sin. Sin, which is described both in John's writings and the rest of the New Testament as disobedience to God. Violations of God's perfect standards. John will describe sin as darkness instead of light, which characterizes God. Sin breaks those relationships. It impacts that fellowship that John wants his readers to enjoy with God and others. And so right before our passage, John addresses different groups of professing Christians and how they view sin and its effect on their relationship with God and others. Some people don't think that sin matters at all. They're like, yeah, I can sin. It's totally fine. No big deal. They can live however they want, and they can still claim to be close to God. And John says, that's a false claim. You're giving yourself false assurance if that's how you're living. And then he points out another group of people. He says there are people who genuinely know they sin, and they trust in Jesus to cleanse them from that sin. That verse that Johnny mentioned just a few moments ago, to cleanse them from all unrighteousness. And John reassures them, and John encourages them with that truth that there is forgiveness for their sin. And then there are people who dishonestly claim that they never sin. They have no sin. They have achieved Christian perfection. And John says that those people don't actually have a relationship with God at all. They are liars, and they are calling God a liar. And so then John starts what we have divided into chapter 2. Now remember, John wasn't writing in chapters. He's just writing a sort of train of thought letter to these people. But in the beginning of chapter 2, he begins with an affectionately parental reminder. Having said all of that about sin and our relationship with God, he says in chapter 2, verse 1, and I think we'll have this passage up on screen. It's already up there. Chapter 2, verse 1. My little children, I am writing you these things so that you may not sin. Now, what in the world? Didn't he just say that anybody who says they don't sin is making God a liar? Yeah, he did. He said that people like that are frauds. So what's he doing here? Here at the beginning of chapter 2, I believe that what he's doing is avoiding a, an extreme reaction to what he's just said. Someone may hear that nobody can claim to be sinless. And so a natural reaction to that could be, well, I apparently can't be free from sin, so why try at all? And John says, no, no, no. My little children, those I deeply, deeply care about, those I've lived my life to serve. He used this affectionate term to show how much he cares for them and that what he's about to say is all about caring for them. He says, my little children, I am reaching out to you. I'm writing to you. All of this because it is genuinely possible to avoid sin, and I really want that for you. He's saying, I want you to not fall to sin every single time you're tempted. I want you to avoid the heartache and the guilt 
and the shame that hurts your relationship with God and others. I want you to live in God's light, not darkness. I want that for you, and that's why I'm writing to you. That's what he's doing at the beginning of of verse 2, of verse 1. And I would ask, does that resonate with you? Do you ever find yourself frustrated, discouraged, hurting, ashamed that you have once again failed God? Or you have once again hurt someone that you loved with your own sin? Do you ever find yourself feeling beaten down and powerless against your own brokenness? John isn't being preachy here. He's not being judgy against those of us who fail like this. What he's doing is seeking to encourage us that if we will listen and follow what he's going to say in this letter, that our lives do not have to be dominated by sin. Sin doesn't have to control us. Sin doesn't have to characterize everything we do. But John is also very refreshingly realistic. Because he follows up this admonition, my little children, I write these things to you so that you may not sin. But then he goes on to acknowledge how hard this Christian life is. He has lived a long life as a follower of Jesus. And he knows exactly how hard it is. He knows that even those who have the closest relationship to Jesus are going to fail sometimes. Maybe they're going to fail a lot. And they're going to experience the pain and the brokenness in that relationship with God and with others. And so he immediately writes, but if anyone does sin, in other words, when you sin, and you will, John offers you amazing comfort and assurance and encouragement to you in just these couple of verses. So that's the context. That's what has led up to the two verses that we're going to study this morning. And if I could summarize the message of this short passage that we're going to look at as we finish up verses 1 and then verse 2, this is the message, I think, of of these two verses. When you sin, Jesus is your advocate and your atonement. When you sin, Jesus is your advocate and your atonement. And I'd like to spend the rest of our time this morning taking in these two encouragements that John gives us when we sin which we all do. And so the first thing we need to understand is that when you sin, Jesus is your advocate. Look at verse 1. If anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. John's first encouragement to us when we are feeling the weight and the guilt of our sin is that we have what is translated here, an advocate with the Father. What does the word advocate mean? The Greek word translated advocate is only used by John in the New Testament. No other writers, not Paul, not Luke, not anybody else. Only John uses this word advocate. And every time he uses it in his gospel or in this passage, he uses it to refer to Jesus or the Holy Spirit in their support of believers. And we can learn more about what this word means by looking at the way that this was used in the context that John was writing in. John was writing in the first century, and in the first century, this word was used fairly frequently in Greek literature, and it was used specifically to refer to a respected person who was supporting someone else in settling a dispute or defending a charge, especially in court. Basically, it was our modern-day version of a defense attorney. 
An advocate was a defense attorney. John is using a deliberately legal term here. This word really wasn't used for much else other than in a legal context. And this resonates with me. I actually was just called for jury duty for the first time in my four years here in Arizona last week. And I actually had to show up. And I was called for grand jury duty. So I got to show up to the county courthouse and I got to be a part of the whole jury selection process. I'm very happy to do my civic duty. I'm very thankful that I didn't actually get selected. It would have been a four-month commitment every single Thursday from now until September. That wouldn't have worked out so great. But I found the jury selection process fascinating. In that process, the district attorney and the judge questioned all of us about our ability to fairly hear cases that were going to come before us as a grand jury. And it was very sobering to consider that particular process of a grand jury because in a grand jury process, there is no defense attorney. In a grand jury process, the prosecution is sharing the facts of the case that they have at that point with the grand jury and with the judge so that a decision can be made as to whether or not the accused person is going to be indicted and go to court. And it's only once the, the case goes to court that the accused person gets any defense whatsoever. And if you've ever watched a case, whether on TV or you've read things about cases, you know how important defense counsel is to an accused person. You know that a judge will often give advice not to represent yourself because typically the prosecution will eat a defendant alive if they don't have a defense attorney. And as important as a defense attorney is in the kinds of cases that I might have gotten to hear as a grand jury panelist, I would say that having a defense attorney is so much more important in God's courtroom than it is in the Coconino County Courthouse. And here's why. Here's the picture. When I sin against God, the perfect righteous standard of God's law basically acts like the district attorney. God's law acts as a prosecutor against me saying, Rand violated this law. Here is the evidence of it. He is guilty. And God is a holy judge. He is the one hearing this case. There is no jury of my peers. God is going to make a decision on my guilt or innocence. And the problem is, when I've sinned, I am absolutely guilty. And so, I have no chance to represent myself. And in fact, it would be a terrible thing if I did. Every other world religion says that you have to represent yourself in that deity's courtroom. That you're going to be judged on the goodness of your own life. You're going to be judged on the merits of your own good works. Did your good outweigh the bad in what you do? And if so, then you can maybe achieve eternal happiness or live with that deity forever. But in God's courtroom, representing myself would be a disaster. I have no plea against God on my own. And so what happens is, as I sit in the defendant's seat in God's courtroom, I don't have to represent myself. Jesus comes alongside me as my advocate, as my defense attorney. That's the word that John's using here. The word is actually the word paraclete. It comes from a couple of words that basically mean to come alongside someone. Now, lots of times when a couple of Greek words combine to form another one, that doesn't mean that that's what the meaning of the word actually is. And in this case, the meaning is much more than coming alongside someone, but it is a beautiful picture of the way a defense attorney acts in court. The defense attorney, in this case, Jesus, my advocate, comes alongside me 
as my legal counsel, and he makes a case before God on my behalf. There's nothing that I can do or say that will change God's sentence, but Jesus can, and Jesus does do something and say something that will make a difference in that courtroom. And why is it that God is willing to hear Jesus as my advocate? I believe the next words in our verse give us a hint at that. It says, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. And these words are very specifically chosen by John to convey certain meaning to us. The name Jesus reminds us that Jesus was human. This was his human name given to him by Mary and Joseph at the command of an angel. Jesus was fully human, and therefore he has the right to represent this human. And so he can represent me. Jesus Christ. Christ means Messiah, chosen one. Jesus was chosen by the Father before the foundation of the world to represent his people, to do this very work of being their advocate. He was selected by the judge to be our advocate. Of course the judge is going to hear him. And the righteous one. The righteous one here means that Jesus has legal standing before God as the only human to ever perfectly obey all of God's commands. He lived a perfectly righteous life. He lived up to the standard that God expects of humanity and that all of humanity, including me and you, have always failed. Jesus never failed. He is the righteous one. This legal counsel that we have, our advocate, is literally the only person who actually has standing in this court before God without being condemned. And so he can speak to God and not be judged. He is our defender. He is our advocate. He stands at our side in God's courtroom to ensure that we get a fair defense and that we can receive a verdict of not guilty. But if you're thinking about the way that legal systems work and about this situation specifically, you might recognize that there's a problem here. And I can illustrate this problem by maybe putting ourselves in this context. Just having the best defense attorney in a courtroom isn't enough to get you off the hook. It's not enough to achieve a not guilty verdict. Let's say that you go down to 4th Street and 66 this afternoon and you rob Dutch bros. Now, I don't know why anybody would rob Dutch bros. Nicest people. But let's say you go and you rob Dutch bros. And you're caught on multiple security cameras robbing Dutch bros. And all the broistas see you, and they're all eyewitnesses to you robbing Dutch bros. And you leave your full set of prints all over the cash register and the equipment as you're robbing Dutch bros. And you leave DNA evidence because you decide to try things that are in there. So your DNA, your fingerprints, eyewitnesses, security cameras, you are dead to rights guilty of robbing Dutch bros. And you get indicted by a grand jury panel that I'm not on, and you get indicted, and you get taken to court, and you might hire the best, most expensive defense attorney out there. And you know what? You're still going to get convicted. Because there is way too much evidence against you to not get convicted. And that tells me that no matter how loyal, how skilled, how persuasive, how righteous our advocate Jesus is, why in the world would a righteous judge declare us not guilty when we are absolutely guilty of sin. How does that happen? 
You know, if John had stopped right here, this actually wouldn't be that encouraging. It would basically be saying, you're super guilty, and we've got a defense attorney who's going to make a good but failing case against you, for you. But John doesn't stop here. The answer is in verse 2. Here's why we are able to be declared not guilty in God's courtroom. When you sin, when you experience that shame and guilt, that separation from God and others in your sin, Jesus is not only your advocate, Jesus is your atonement. When you sin, Jesus is your advocate and he is your atonement. He himself, verse 2 says, is the atoning sacrifice for our sins and not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. This is the basis for Jesus' advocacy for us when we sin. Not only does our defense attorney have standing with the judge and argue on our behalf, it turns out that our defense attorney has already taken the full brunt of the death sentence that we deserved and that God would have given to us. He's already taken the punishment. There's no more sentence to be given to us because of what Jesus has done. Our advocate has already served our sentence by the time that he represents us in God's courtroom. The word translated atoning sacrifice here in the Christian Standard Bible that we're using this morning, it's translated in other versions with some other words. In the Bible that I grew up with, it's propitiation, which means the removal of God's anger. In some other translations, it's expiation, which means the removal of guilt. And this word atoning sacrifice, actually, this phrase that's translated here, I think is translated really well. It really covers both of those things. It's the removal of both guilt and God's wrath against us as guilty people. And all of these words get the, at the idea of removing God's anger and removing the guilt of sin. And the picture here is meant to remind John's audience of history. This atoning sacrifice is something that many of John's readers who had Jewish heritage would have been very familiar with because of the history of Old Testament Israel. In the Old Testament, when you sinned, you had to go to the priest with a spotless, healthy animal, very often a little innocent white lamb. And the priest would ceremonially kill that innocent animal and burn it on the altar for the sin that you had committed. Not that the lamb had committed. Lamb hadn't done anything wrong, but you had. And the lamb suffered and died in your place as a picture of how God would accept a substitute in place of you when you are guilty of sin. And so it was a, br a brutal and a bloody reminder that the penalty for sin is death, and that penalty has to be paid, whether by you or by someone else, for your guilt and God's anger to be removed from you. But this word atoning sacrifice goes back even further than the sacrificial laws that we have written for us in Leviticus and that were followed in the tabernacle and the temple. Remember back in Exodus, as God's people, the Israelites, were enslaved in Egypt? And Pharaoh had already experienced nine really horrific plagues and was still refusing to let God's people go? God promised that one more plague was coming. He was going to send death over all the land of Egypt to take the firstborn child in every household within Egypt's borders. And God said there's one way to escape from that judgment. And the one way was you take a lamb and you kill it and you spread its blood on the doorpost of your house. And when death would go over the city, 
taking the firstborn from every house. If the angel of death saw the blood on the doorpost, it was an atonement, and you would be spared, and the angel of death would pass over your house, and you would be spared. And so this atoning sacrifice that John mentions here had a rich history of a lamb dying in the place of guilty people. And what John is saying in verse 2 is that Jesus is not just offering a sacrifice for us. Yes, he is our great high priest, and there are many other passages that speak of that. But in this case, John, do you notice, says it's not that he's offering an atoning sacrifice. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sin. He is himself the lamb whose blood was shed for us. John had witnessed this personally. John was a personal witness to the atoning sacrifice that Jesus made when he hung on a cross. When John watched Jesus being executed on that Roman cross, it looked to everybody like this was just an earthly and very, frankly, unjust punishment happening against, happening against a Jewish teacher. But that's not all that was going on there. As John watched Jesus die on that cross, and he had personally witnessed this, what was happening is that God was declaring Jesus guilty. God was declaring Jesus guilty of all of the sins of his people. He was pouring out all of his anger against those sins on his son Jesus instead of us. And when Jesus, who was called the Lamb of God by John, when Jesus died that bloody death, he was dying as the atoning sacrifice for our sins, removing our guilt, removing all of God's anger against our sin. And so go back to our courtroom scene. When Jesus comes alongside us as our defense attorney, as our advocate, and he defends us in God's courtroom, he is arguing based on incontrovertible evidence that he himself has already atoned for our sins. He is saying, Your Honor, Rand is not guilty because I took on his guilt. I've already been punished. He cannot be punished for this sin. He is our advocate and he is claiming the effectiveness of his atonement for us in God's courtroom. And John is saying, when you sin, you have an advocate who can make a perfectly airtight case on your behalf so that you aren't punished. You don't have to despair. You don't have to wallow in shame and in guilt because Jesus is your advocate. Jesus is your atonement. And then John actually strengthens his argument at the end of this passage. He strengthens this encouragement to sin-prone readers like you and me with this really interesting addition. He says he is the atoning sacrifice for our sins and not only for ours, but also for those of the whole world. Now, why does he add this? How does this strengthen his argument that when believers sin, Jesus is their atonement? Remember we talked about the importance of context earlier? Context is super important when understanding what John is doing here. Because otherwise you can come up with some really kind of strange theological ideas. What John is saying here is using this word world, the sins of the whole world, to help us be encouraged when we sin. And so we're going to look at sort of two areas of context here that help us understand what John is saying. We're going to look at his other writings, which is always important when you want to understand what a biblical writer is saying. And then we're going to look at his audience and what he has to say 
that would make this so important for them. When we look at John's other writings, John uses this word world, the sins of the whole world. He used the term world a whole bunch in his gospel. He uses it a lot here in 1 John, this letter that we're reading. And what's interesting is most of the time when he's using the word world, he's not referring to a planet. He's not referring to really the population of the world. Very often, he's referring to the world system that is opposed to God and his ways. You'll find later in 1 John where John writes, Do not love the world, neither the things that are in the world. For all that's in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, is not of the Father but is of the world. Do you think John is saying here, you really shouldn't be loving people? Don't want you to be loving the people of the world? No, of course not. He's saying, don't love this system that is opposed to the God who you say you love. Love God instead. And so that may be what John is doing here. One view of this is that John is saying, he's died not only for your sins, you who now believe in him and who are not opposed to God, he's died for the sins of for all of history, including this world system that is so opposed to God, there are people in that system who are going to be rescued. There are people who are going to be brought out of that darkness into light. And it's good for them too. That's one way that John uses world. Another way that John uses world is to talk about large groups of people, to talk about the people who live in this world. And this is the world that we are to love. But one thing that very often is used from a passage like this is unfortunately a concept of universalism. There's a universalism that can be supported with this passage and some others if you remove them from their context. And universalism will say that everyone in all of history, no matter whether they believe or not, will ultimately be saved. That there is no hell that's ever going to be populated by humans and that all of humanity will eventually be saved because Jesus has atoned for the sins of the whole world. Their guilt has been removed. God cannot punish them. And so no matter what, they're going to be saved. The unfortunate thing with that is that while it may feel good to believe something like that, it's just not consistent with what John teaches or what any of the other writers of the Bible teach, where we learn that repentance and faith is genuinely necessary to accept this gift of Christ's atonement for us. To have him as our advocate and to have him as our atonement, we must believe, and those who do not believe, the Bible says, will be condemned to an eternity of judgment. And so universalism cannot be true. That cannot be what John means when he says that Jesus has atoned for the sins of the whole world. So let's look at another area of context. Let's look at the audience John was writing to. And I think this will help us understand what he is doing with this text and really provide us with wonderful encouragement. The context of John's audience is a first-century Mediterranean audience who were Christians, right? John is writing to believers here. And as he's writing to these believers, he is writing to a group of Christians who largely fell into two camps. You had, formerly, you had Jewish believers, Jewish by heritage, who were very familiar with the Jewish religion, and the Old Testament faith that was ultimately fulfilled in Jesus, and they were trusting in Jesus as the fulfillment of the Jewish faith. And then, in another camp, you had Greek and Roman believers who had left those pagan religions to follow Jesus. But what most of John's readers had in common was a religious heritage, whether it was Jewish or Greek or Roman, they had a Jewish heritage that limited God's interest and favor to specific countries, 
specific ethnicities, specific geographies. You see, in Jewish history, God had primarily revealed himself and worked among the Jewish people. They knew this. In both Greek and Roman religions, there were hundreds of gods, each focused on a certain city or a certain ethnic group or vocation or even geography. Like you had the gods of Sparta and you had the goddess of farmers and you had the god of the mountains and you had gods that were very limited in their remit and who they dealt with and who they showed favor to. And John's writing to this audience that is very familiar with this idea because the religions of the ancient world weren't global. They made your ethnicity or your nationality or your profession a condition for a relationship with any particular God. And so what I believe John is doing is making a deliberate, very countercultural assertion here that unlike every other known religion of that day, the very cornerstone of the Christian religion, the atoning sacrifice of Jesus, does not know any racial bounds, any national bounds, any geographic bounds, He's saying he is not just for you who might be reading this in your particular context. He is the atoning sacrifice across all ethnicities, all geographies, all people for all time. His blood was good enough for all of that. Jesus' sacrifice was sufficient for the sins of the whole world for all of history. So John's letter could be written in Ephesus, and it could be read in Ephesus. John's letter could be read in Jerusalem. John's letter could be read in Rome. John's letter could be read 2,000 years later in a high school auditorium in Flagstaff, Arizona, and John's words to comfort sinning, broken Christians like you and me still stand that when you sin, when each one of you who believe in Jesus sin, Jesus is your advocate, and specifically Jesus is your effective atonement. It's good for you 2,000 years after he wrote this because it wasn't just for his original audience. It was for all of us. The words to one of my favorite songs have been playing in my head for the last couple of weeks as I really studied this short passage. And I'd like to actually close this morning by having you listen to these words and letting their encouragement wash over you. Before the throne of God above, I have a strong, a perfect plea. A great high priest whose name is love, who ever lives and pleads for me. My name is graven on his hands. My name is written on his heart. I know that while in heaven he stands, no tongue can bid me thence depart. When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look And see him there who made an end to all my sin. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God, the just, is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. Behold him there, the risen lamb, my perfect, spotless righteousness. The great, unchangeable I am, the king of glory and of grace. One with himself I cannot die. My soul is purchased by his blood. My life is hid with Christ on high. With Christ, my Savior, and my God. No matter who you are, no matter what you have done, no matter what you are ashamed of, no matter what you are hiding this morning, no matter what you are broken about today, let this promise from John's letter carry you 
into our time of response this morning and into this next week. When you sin, Jesus is your advocate and your atonement. Let's pray. Father, we are so thankful that as we come before your throne of grace and in your courtroom, we do not have to stand on our own merits. When we sin, when we fail you, and oh God, we do that so often, we do not have to wallow in shame and guilt. We do not have to hide from you because our guilt has been taken away. Your anger has been removed by Jesus Christ, the righteous one, who advocates for us even right now as we pray. As we go into this time of response, would you give us a posture of heart that is humbly reliant on Jesus and him alone for everything in our life? And we thank you for all of this and pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.